Hi, this is Ethan Song and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Sonu Jane to discuss flexor tendon injuries and repair. Dr. Sonu Jane is a professor of plastic surgery and orthopedics at The Ohio State University. He serves as the chief of hand surgery in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and the associate program director for the Hand and Upper Extremity Fellowship. Dr. Jane completed his medical school in Philadelphia at MCP Hahnemann School of Medicine and completed a residency in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Louisiana State University in New Orleans prior to his residency in plastic surgery at the Leahy Clinic in Boston. He then pursued an orthopedic hand fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He has been on faculty at The Ohio State University since 2012, previously being at the University of Florida. He currently serves on multiple committees in the American Society for Surgery of the Hand, American Association for Hand Surgery, American Society of Plastic Surgeons, and the American Council of Academic Plastic Surgeons. He serves on the board of directors as the junior director at large and is the chair of the webinar committee for the American Association for Hand Surgery. He is a member of the AO North America Hand Trauma Faculty and serves on their Hand Trauma Education Committee. He also serves on the editorial board of Hand P at the American Society for Surgery of the Hand. Lastly, he is an oral examiner for the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jane. Yeah, thank you, Ethan. Uh, thank you, Hannah, for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of the Duke uh, podcast. No, we're happy to have you. Uh, Dr. Jane gave a great lecture at Duke a while back on flexor tendon injuries, and Ethan and I were like, we've got to get him on the podcast because it was uh, it was so great having him at Duke. So thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Jane, you want to start off just by telling us, um, you know, when we're going to see patients in the emergency room, what are some key elements of the history to make sure that we get, and just what do you look for in physical exam when assessing patients with potential flexor tendon injuries? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think in, in hand surgery in general, uh, it's really important to kind of get a thorough history because that's going to be uh, helpful in guiding you in, in, in terms of what you want to do with that patient in addition to the type, in addition to the injury itself. And um, so obviously I want to find out their age, their their handedness, their occupation. What was the mechanism of injury? Um, uh, what um, you know? Uh, have they had previous surgeries uh, in the hand? Uh, previous problems with their what was their previous hand function? Um, I would like to know if they have a history of arthritis, things of that sort um, to help me uh, make my decision. Does their occupation require specifically with flexor tendon injuries? Is their occupation require you know, profound gripping, is that really important to what they do? Things of that sort. Are they uh, also if they smoke? <laughs> and then um, when you're doing like a physical examination, are there any things that you're specifically looking for? Let's say there's like a big laceration to the hand. You know, what, what are you looking for when you're looking at the hand there? I'm thinking of all the structures in that area. So if it's in the finger, I'm thinking of tendons. I'm thinking of the digital nerves and digital vessels. Is the finger perfused? Uh, first and foremost, what's going through my mind is this something that needs to go emergently to the OR? And I even when I'm 
more so than thinking of the flexor tendon injury is this a disvascular finger. Um, in the hand, we don't tend to see that as much, but though it's theoretically possible. But in, in you know, when you have a more proximal injury, you're thinking of larger nerve injuries, uh, the tendons, um, and you know, you could potentially have bony injuries in those, depending upon the mechanism of injury. If it's from a um, like a saw or something that's uh, that can go through bone versus like a knife or a blade. So I think, you know, when you get other uh, tests such as x-rays, that can help give you some information regarding that. And I know, you know, when patients are cooperative, it's fairly easy to isolate FTP and FDS. And then something that I've found helpful in a ton of patients or patients that really aren't as interactive is just testing adhesis. And you can get a pretty good idea of if there's a flexor tendon injury that way, you know, which is helpful, like in the ICU settings. Absolutely. I agree with that entirely. And I think just looking at the posture of the finger just at rest sometimes, even without TND, sometimes you can get an idea if it's, if it's an isolated uh, FDP or FDS or even combined, you know, that there's something that's that's off there just depending upon the baseline flexion, you know, posture of, of the joint. And so let's say we've determined there's, you know, zone two flexor tendon injury. From there, what are you thinking in terms of timing to get this in? Is this something you want to do, you know, the next day, within a week? Kind of what is your thoughts on uh, surgical timing? Yeah, I like to do these uh, fairly soon. I think the sooner the better. So ideally within a week. If you can do it in the next day or two, that's great. Um, I think it also depends on um, the other types of injuries involved. If it's an isolated, like you said, flexor tendon injury, then I think the sooner the better. If you're worried about like crush component along with that, um, then you may, and there's some other issues that you have to take care of at the same time, you may want to do it immediately, but also if there's a lot of edema at times, you may want to, you know, wait till later on in the week just to let that settle down too as well. But uh, all things being equal, isolated tendon injury, maybe a digital nerve, do it ASAP, but ideally within a week, um, you're kind of pushing it at, at, at two weeks, uh, even though it can be done. And even beyond that, there are stories that, and there are patients that I've had that have had uh, delayed repairs, but you're sort of playing with fire at that point, but <laughs> try to avoid those where possible. Yeah, mm -hmm. but try to make things as easy as possible. So that's good. And Dr. Jane, for some of the younger learners, um, why why is it bad to do a delayed repair of these flexor tendon injuries? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So you worry about uh, muscle contracture, and if you don't have the tendons out to like, especially if the tendons are retracted, if the trend, if the tendon laceration is there and you have a proximal segment of that tendon that retracts because the muscle has a certain amount of, of force, sometimes the tendons can actually stay out to length to some extent based upon the vincular system, which are the vessels uh, uh, attachments or the vascular supply to the uh, tendons uh, and or the pulley system sometimes can hold them in place. And in those cases, you, the tendons are able to be maintained to that length and you can repair them later on. But if they're retracted proximally and the muscles contract, then, you know, a lot of times you can't get the muscle out to length. And then now you have a large enough gap where it precludes repair. Or and if you do a repair, you'll, you'll cause a much bigger problem than, than, uh, you know, um, leaving it alone. All right. So now we've made it to the OR and we have our, you know, flexor tendon completely lacerated. Uh, and there's lots of different methods of repair, whether it's modified Kessler, cruciate, MTing, sutures. And then there's, you know, lots of literature on number of core sutures, kind of where to place the knot. Uh, will you take us through what your ideal repair is? Yeah. So this is a, this is a great question. I think we've been talking about uh, 
types of repairs for so many years. So I'll start with the number of core sutures. I think that's where most of us are in agreement. You want to have at least a minimum of four core repair uh, sutures for your repair. And ideally you'd want to use like a you know, braided polyester for that. And um, if I can put six, that'd be great for some of the larger tendons. I can do that. Um, for smaller tendons, uh, you're going to get four. And I do a modified Kessler. And I think the term modified Kessler is is thrown around very, you know, generously. So I think if you really want to dive down to the type, I almost kind of do a, this modification of a, of a of a Pennington, and and so I think that's what most people do. And I think there, I think there's some discussion about like what truly is a modified Kessler. There's not, it's, it's very ill-defined. So, so I do that. And I, I usually, I usually use a, a grasping, uh, occasionally a locking um, stitch. Um, and, you know, the locking has a little better, uh, you know, outcome some in, in some patients, I think, but uh, I like the glide. So that way I don't have a, you know, I don't have gapping at the site and that, and I can kind of mention that when we go over to actual repair techniques, but uh, in general, um, I will do the modified Kessler four strand and uh, and use a braided polyester for that. Yeah, that is true. I think people just say modified Kessler and it is uh, kind of an unclear term. So that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And um, compared to like some of the other. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to ask uh, ask one of the other questions. I think you asked about the knot. So I put the knot in the center just because that's the way it falls for my I the way I place my sutures. Um, I don't do it deliberately that way, but that's just the way it is. And I think there's some data to show that if you do have the knot externally, there may be a slightly increased strength in the first six weeks, but after that, it's all equal. And generally speaking, I don't think there's a consensus on one being better than the other. Thanks, Dr. Jane. Um, so going back to your, your method of repair using like a modified Kessler or sort of like a modified Pennington, how does it compare to some of the other methods out there? And why do you prefer this over some of the other methods such as like a cruciate or an M-Tang? No, that's a good question. I think, um, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other per se. I think, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with this, with this repair and it works well in my hands. And I think it's, I think suturing tendons, you have sort of have to like do what's best, what you feel comfortable doing. So if there's a certain repair that you like and that works well for you, then you should stick with it. Because I don't think you necessarily have to do, you know, quote somebody else's described repair if what you're doing works well. If what you're doing is not working well in your hands, then by all means, I think you should look for uh, the other various techniques that have been described. But I mean, if you're happy with what you're doing, you're getting the results, then you stick with it. And I think the modified Kessler um, that I've been using, which I've you know learned from my 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 training, uh, works well for me. And um, and I think the data has not been sh has not shown consistently any one technique being better than the other, to be honest. So uh, and I and, and you can also argue that you know we've we've tried to look at. I mean, how many repairs do we have out there? I mean, you could probably, you know, fill a line notebook page with every single type of repair. And, and if, you know, and I think that somebody said also that if there are so many techniques to do the same thing, then either they're all good or none are good. Right. So like, so that's why I look at it. And then do you use an epitendinous suture if you're in like zone two? Yeah. So that's a good question. I used to do that a lot more before I vented the pulley system. And now since I try to vent the pulleys, you know, um, you know, as described by Jimbo Tang, I've used them less. And I, 
actually, to, to be honest, have started trying to put six core sutures in some of those, you know, uh, tendons because now I don't mind the bulk because, yeah. you know, since I don't have to have those tendons go through the pulley system, I can, I can be, you know, have that liberty to have a bulky repair and a six core strand repair is going to be stronger biomechanically than a four core strand with an epitendous suture. So why wouldn't I want to go for something stronger? So that's the way I'd look at it. doesn't mean I won't use it, but there may be at times, but I don't, I don't do it religiously. Uh, the epitendous suture that is. Yeah, no, this was kind of one of my favorite parts of your talk when you came to Duke, but just talking about how much you feel comfortable venting the pulleys. Can you talk a little bit more about the degree to which you feel comfortable doing that and if you've seen bowstringing or if there's any concern for bowstringing? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think that's one of the things we have always kind of been taught um, and that you don't want to violate these certain pulleys. And obviously I'm referring to the A2 and the A4 pulleys and it was sort of dogma, right? And until these dogmas are, are, are challenged, we really don't know what happens when we, when we quote, violate them. And I think, you know, with the work by Dr. Tang, I think showing that you can do this, plus also some of the you know, doing the uh, flexion tendons under wide awake local anesthesia or, or even with, you know, uh, being awake with sedation just to test out intraoperatively active motion has really helped uh, guide some of that. So I think that also is a, is a part of that. But going back to the to the question about the amount of venting, I'm pretty good with with completely releasing the A4 and and just proximal to that, uh, the, the cruise should. I try to leave the A4 three where possible. If I absolutely need to, uh, just from the tendon excursion, that I may do that, but I try not to go past that. Um, likewise, with the um, A2, I try not to, I don't take the entire A2 ever if, if I, if, unless there's some catastrophic reason that it's already been injured from the trauma itself, but deliberately may making the, uh, the cut uh, I don't do that. I try to leave, at, you know, at least fifty percent of that in place. If I take a little more, uh, you know, that's fine. You, you have to do what you have to do to get the repair. But if I have to, uh, if I can choose to leave a certain amount, I probably would not take more than fifty percent of it. That way, I at least preserve that. And and if you do, and if you do need to take fifty percent of it, and you need, to, and your repair is proximal, or your your laceration is kind of at that zone or the proximal a. A2 with the finger extended. And then, you know, when you flex, it's going to go, the, the repair is going to go proximally. Then you can completely release the, a, the A1. Obviously, that's not a big deal because you left a good portion of the A2 in place. But so I think you can take a good, a good portion of, of A2. Have I taken more than that at times? Yes. I try not to do that. And, you know, to go to your other question about bowstringing, um, I have not seen that. Um, so whether it's seeing me and I'm not seeing it, that's a different story. Yeah. But so I think the key term here is, are we having clinical bowstringing? So they may have biomechanical bowstringing if we were to, you know, use an ultrasound or, or you know, to look at it or, 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 or if we had it, uh, a look in the OR, if we went back to, you know, take a look for some reason, um, we may see it, but the patients aren't noticing it and I'm not taking somebody back to correct it. So it, if it's there, it's not clinically relevant. And I'm not seeing it in my practice. And I have not seen anybody really describe this in the past several years since this technique has been out that they're seeing this. And I, I'm quite sure if, if we were seeing it, we would see a paper on it or some description of that, you know, this is happening. And I think that's helpful because there's been a couple of times when I don't feel like I'm getting really, uh, I guess is as an ideal repair as I could if I had vented more and I'm kind of struggling to get the end. So 
I think that's really helpful to feel more comfortable doing that. So, and, and Dr. Jane, do you test um, this for bowstringing after the repair? Like, do you um, would, do you prepare these or repair these lacerations under wide awake local anesthesia, no tourniquet, so that the patient can show you so that you can assess for this? Yeah. So I'll kind of do, depending on the patient, I'll do wide awake local anesthesia, no tourniquet wide awake local anesthesia, you know, or sorry, I shouldn't say that, scratch that. Well, I might do a little sedation uh, with with tourniquet and then I'll actually wake them up uh, after the repair and then they'll be completely awake without the tourniquet. So it'll be initially a sedation, you know, with tourniquet. And then when I wake them up, then I'm, uh, you know, at that point I will, you know, have them tested out. And if I need to correct anything, I'm not putting the tourniquet back up because I'll still use, um, you know, lidocaine with epinephrine as well too. So that way, if I need to get access to anything. I don't need to put the, you already have a pretty bloodless field. So I won't have that up for the majority of the time, but I'll probably do that for somebody who's really kind of nervous about me wanting to, you know, do this under being awake. I think they're usually okay with, oh yeah, it's already fixed and I'm going to test it out. Then they're, then they're kind of fine with that. But as far as the initial, the, you know, kind of retrieving the tendon, pulling and all that, I think, I think it makes people a little bit uncomfortable. So I think you have to kind of know your patient, but, you know, if I, if I could do everybody, you know, all patients under wide awake, you know, anesthesia and no tourniquet and they're, and they're a game for that for a finger, then I think that's, that's the best way to go. And, on a note regarding that, I don't think you necessarily have to necessarily not use a tourniquet. If you want to put a short tourniquet on for 10, 15 minutes, just to kind of ease with things in case you don't have a, a true bloodless field immediately, or or you just want to just move things along quickly, I don't think it's a bad idea to do that. So I've done that at times if, if you want to just facilitate that, but, you know, it just kind of, it's, you know, dealer's choice on that. And for the appropriate patient, will you do these like in a clinic setting? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I will not. I know we're just, pushing how much you can do kind of in like an yeah. office space, but uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think I feel comfortable with that either, but just curious. Yeah. The only reason I wouldn't do that is because a lot of times with some of these flexor tendon injuries, there's an associated digital nerve injury that you don't really appreciate on exam because even if you examine patients, sometimes paradoxically patients will tell you they have normal sensation and actually give you a normal test and you go in and the nerves completely lacerated. So I don't, you know, I think in the acute traumatic setting, sometimes the nerve exam is not always hundred percent from the patient or if they're not, because even though you're getting an objective assessment, it still requires a subjective response from the patient. So it's not truly like a true objective test as we, as we would like to think it is. Right. And so uh, I've been surprised with that at times. And so because of that, I want to be able to have all the tools I need to do to take care of other things in case I get any surprises in the OR. Like I, you know, if I, if it's violated the, you know, the, the, uh, the joint, let's say it's at zone two and I went into the uh, PIP joint, I need to do something there or, you know, who knows. Uh, I think some of these injuries, um, uh, if you, if you have, well, some of these injuries you could do in the clinic if you really had your 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 procedure room stocked for anything and everything available. But I think you'd have to have a very robust procedure room for that. But I think from what we have and what most people have, I, I don't know if I would feel comfortable doing that just because I would hate to abort the operation to say, oh yeah, sorry, there's something else going on. Now I have to go to the OR in a few days and do this. I just don't know if, if that's really something I want to oh, be a part sense. of. <laughs> So, um, Dr. Jane, let's say it, earlier you were talking about, you know, retrieving the, the tendon proximally. Is there like a specific approach that you like to do, especially if, let's say, it's been a week or so 
and you don't know exactly where to find the proximal tendon, especially if it's retracted. Um, and how do you bring it back onto the field and then maintain it in that position? Yeah. So sometimes I'll try to, you know, flush out the the wound proximally, kind of clear, clear up the clots. Um, I'll try to, um, you know, work on some passive motion of the, you know, uh, joints proximal and distal to it. So that way it can kind of hopefully kind of, you know, loosen the, the tendon. And then I'll try to also kind of do the milky maneuver, try to push on the tendon and see if I can advance it, you know, from proximal distal or distal to proximal, depending on what I'm trying to retrieve. And if that all fails, then I'll I'll try to, you know, uh, make a, a counter incision somewhere if it's really proximal and try to see if I can retrieve it. Sometimes I will try to uh, make an attempt to retrieve it with just a, like a tendon passer or a uh, very small mosquito. I don't do that too many times because I, I don't want to traumatize the end of the tendon. Um, and I'm okay with doing that to some extent because I do trim off a little bit of the edge of the tendon that, before I repair it. So I do know that I'm not going to be suturing that, you know, site that I grasp, you know, uh, at the repair site. But I don't want to do that too many times because I don't want to, again, traumatize it. So then if I'm going to retrieve and bring it in, I'll try to, if I'm, if I'm outside from a counter incision, I'll try to put my Kessler sutures in it and then I'll try to pass it down the path and I'll just try to uh, pull it, you know, pass it through the, the pulley. And then as I'm pulling it through the pulley, I'll use like a, you know, like uh, uh, some kind of an elevator or some kind of uh, like a free elevators kind of uh, dilate the, the pulley a little bit just to kind of get it to funnel the you know the um tendon through i don't use pulley i don't have pulley dilators in our in, in my practice here i know some places they do have those uh the formal the, the formal pulley dilators but that's that's what you can do if you don't have those i mean you can also use like you know, obviously like um you know other types of dilators too that are available from other surgical services and then switching gears just a little bit um in terms of chronic flexor tendon lacerations or tendon lacerations that fail and you think need a two-stage repair, can you walk us through kind of what your preferred method for a two-stage repair is? Yeah, I try to do um, a two-stage repair using um, using a graft. Um, and so obviously I'll make sure there's the pulley being intact. If the pulley's not intact, I'll reconstruct that with, with Palmaris. Um, and if it... Uh, um, is intact then great but then i'll also put my hunter rod in the standard fashion which is a silicone rod that you place from the uh, wrist into the uh, tip of the finger assuming you're reconstructing uh, the ftp tendon which is typically done and then that way you create a pseudo uh, sheath for your future reconstruction with your graft and then i'll i'll try to use palmaris if i didn't use it for my um, pulley reconstruction if not i'll try to use a tendon graft um if it's the if the fd S tendon, I should say, wasn't has enough length. I should say, well, scratch it. Let me let me just rephrase that. If um, there's enough length of the FDS tendon, I'll use that as a as a uh, intrasynovial graft and uh, use that to, as my interposition free graft and um, use that to reconstruct my FTP tendon. Um, if I don't have that, um, then you can also use uh, plantaris and um, or you know contralateral palmaris if you want to those those tens of sort uh you can try uh split uh tendons like a slit uh fcr or or even take a, a, a extensor uh, tendon if you want to it just depends what what your how big of the tendon you need or how much caliber 
to do that reconstruction, but I've never really had to do that. Um, I've had these other ones available. So, um, what's your experience with how well these patients do? Because so, yeah. I don't know, are they like really stiff? Do you feel like they do as well as primary repair in any circumstance, or like what's your experience with these? You know, so I have I have a patient who actually did really well with this recently that I did, and she actually has a full composite fist. I mean, she can bring herself down. I mean, she's almost better than some of my primary repairs at times. So you can get exceptional results, but I caution people on these because it's going to require a lot of therapy, a lot of good therapy, a lot of compliance. Um, you know, you know, I've also had complications. I've had patients who you know, had these and they smoked a lot and they pussed out their you know, their um, silicone rod and had to take it out and just abort mission. And we, you know, we did something else. So there's, there's everything and anything and and everything in between, right? So I, I think that you can get great results with it, um, but just be cautious. I I don't usually use the uh, pedicled FDS, uh, the Paneva Holovich. I think that's what you're referring to, right? Um, before I've used it once, I wasn't too thrilled with it getting the excursion. So I'd I'd rather just do the more more traditional, you know, graft free graft. Yeah. So um, with regards to I guess our patient picture now is like being delayed and delayed a little, a little bit more. You're talking about some of the post-operative care being really important for um, rehabilitation and the physical therapy. Um, what is your typical timeline like for um, getting them into like a post-operative rehabilitation plan? And um, does it differ depending on the number of core sutures or your zone of injury? Uh, no, I get them in pretty quickly. I get them in within five to seven days after the surgery. Um, it doesn't matter on the core sutures. I, I have them uh, unless I'm ha- unless I have a patient who has a, a a really weak repair for some reason. In which case, I may do a little more of a delayed protocol. Most of my patients, and almost always for isolated uh, zone two, they start therapy with an early motion protocol. Uh, five to seven days. So I try not to do it before five days. There's some data to show that there's too much edema in the first five days. And and so you should probably wait till after day, or after day four. So five and onwards is when you should start initiate therapy. And one thing I was going to mention about uh, the previous uh, question. So if somebody's going to be a candidate for a um, two-stage reconstruction, they need to have uh, excellent passive range of motion and um, they need to have supple joints because if your motion is not there passively, preoperatively before your reconstruction, it will not be there postoperatively. You're not going to get more than what you have. That's a good point. Their uh, their joints are stiff. Fixing the tendons probably not going to help them do much. So, yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, and then let's say for whatever reason the patient doesn't go to therapy, or for any reason they, you know, need a tenolysis. What time frame are you waiting before you're considering tenolysis and do you find that it's like how often do you need that in your practice yeah i do it um not as much as i used to after doing more of the wide awake you know early or uh, intraoperative motion uh surgery techniques um so typically i would say i start about four months i i give the patient four months of you know therapy before I consider tenolysis. So my my window for tenolysis is 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 four to six months after the uh, surgery. I want the tissues to sort of be you know sort of get past get, like a first stage of healing or in yeah. Like a- I want them I want them to be like sort of like just 
you know, sort of settled down. You know, I think um, somebody coined the term like tissue equilibrium or something. I read that somewhere. So, you know, you know, so you, you want, you want to get past that, past that point where you're not in this active healing granulation phase. You want, you want it to be, you want everything to be settled down when yeah. you, when you go back in, I guess that's the way I should put it. And Dr. Jane, have you ever been in like a situation in the operative room or like down in the ED when you're seeing a patient, you feel like, oh man, this rupture, like likelihood is probably going to be a little bit higher. Um, are there things that you're looking for? You know, how do you plan for like maybe the future if you have a suspicion that maybe there's going to be a increased likelihood of rupture of the repair? Oh, so you're saying like um, before I did surgery or after I did surgery? Either, yeah, before or after, or even in surgery, you're like thinking to yourself, well, maybe we'll have to like go back again. Hmm. Good question. So, I mean, if my, if I have good motion in the surgery, then I'm more confident, um, or I shouldn't say good motion, but if I have, you know, a solid repair at the time of surgery, then I'm more confident. But the, the beauty of, of evaluating this properly, if there's gapping, I'm going to be able to fix that. So we're not going to leave the OR if we're gapping, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the question is, it would have to be a different kind of injury if you're not able to get that in a primary repair, right? Um, so I think if you're looking at factors of, of patients that I'd be worried about having complications, then I would say somebody who is, you know, you know, goes back to maybe a smoker, maybe somebody who is um, who's diabetic uh, that may be uncontrolled, somebody who may have uh, socioeconomic issues where they can't attend therapy. I think that's a big, that's the problem. If somebody can't, you know, I've seen that, not, you know, not uncommonly where patients have transportation problems and they can't do therapy. Uh, the gas is too expensive to travel, you know, two or three times a week to go to therapy or if they live far away, they can't come to a, a therapist that is familiar with flexor tendons. They may see a, a, a therapist, but not somebody who, you know, does that too often. So I think those things, those are the scenarios that may decrease your chances for a successful post-operative uh, scenario. Gotcha. And then any like special considerations for patients, let's say they come in with like partial laceration, less than 50%, would you ever want to repair them or you sort of let them hang out and see how they do? Yeah, I think I, you know, historically, I think, you know, a lot of times we, we tended to repair these lacerations. My threshold is probably around the 50% mark that I'll repair it, I think, but below that, unlikely, I think I'd rather just trim them and kind of uh, bevel the edges so it can glide better. Um, there is there's a study that kind of did a uh, overall review of this that showed you can actually leave 90% actually have a 90% laceration and patients should do fine or have a, a 75% laceration, you know, and, and have, um, you know, uh, if you have clicking or, or, or catching, I should say, not, not clicking, if you have catching, but up uh, but a 75% laceration, then you can repair that. But I don't know if I would go to that extent i think i i don't think that even though that's there theoretically and that's what kind of what the you know reviews looked at from or you know from from what's what's out there so far i don't know if i feel comfortable not repairing somebody with a greater than 50 percent laceration uh, but i do think that it's very reasonable to just trim anything below 50 percent. so i think that's probably where where we should be or where I would at least practice myself. And then one last clinical cl question we had um, were about jersey finger repairs, mm -hmm. uh, whether if it's acute, if you find suture anchors are helpful, 
And then the second part of the question is for chronic injuries. If you tend to counsel patients for a DIP fusion versus uh, trying a two-stage repair. Yeah. I don't have a go-to, I should say. Sometimes I'll just do a suture anchor uh, or two suture anchors, depending upon the, the tendon. Um, sometimes I'll do a suture anchor plus a suture button repair um, with, with uh, um, you know, as, as a kind of a belt and suspenders. I think if I have somebody who has a, a very large uh, FDP tendon, then I may go for both. But I think if it's a small, like a smaller digit and the FDP is not that robust, then I think one or two uh, suture anchors are fine. I think with the quality of the suture anchors uh, getting better over time with pull-out strength, I think we can do that now, putting these small little <laughs> devices that actually have pretty incredible you know, strength. And I think that's very reasonable. So I, I sort of, you know, we'll do, um, I could do either or depending upon the patient. And, and then, then yeah, sorry to answer your second question about the chronic, right? Uh, so I, I don't have too many people who opt for the DIP fusion. I present the options to them of leaving it alone, doing a fusion, or, you know, if they're, if they're arthritic, a lot of times they, you know, they'll, they'll have limited motion anyways. I don't really, you know, there's also, you could also do a capsulography as well if you want to do that kind of tether down, but that's also not very useful. That's only useful for somebody who really needs to have that terminal flexion, you know, um, uh, to, to help them. And there are some fusion um, hardware for the DIP joint that does give a little bit of flexion that you could you could put in patients as well. So there's a lot of, op there's a lot of options out there. Long story short, present your patients all the options and, and depending upon what they are doing and what they need their hand to do and what finger is involved, they may choose a surgical intervention. But largely, I can't recall anybody in the last several years who's had a delayed uh, presentation where we couldn't do a um, FDP repair who opted for something to be done for the DIP joint. So I think just be aware, present uh, the facts to the patient and realistically what they can expect. And then, you, you know, you can go from there. Yeah, no, I don't think I've seen one either, but I was just curious. <laughs> All right. Ethan, do you want to ask uh, some of our bonus questions for the end? Oh yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> this is some of my favorite parts of the interview because we get to learn a bit, little bit more about you, Dr. Jane. Um, yeah. So do you have like a very memorable case or a good save regarding flexor tendon repairs? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of have a, have a couple. I mean, I think one is um, you, doing the wide awake anesthesia or wide awake um, protocol uh, intraoperatively. I've noticed my rupture rates, my adhesion rates for, for fingers, for isolated injuries, not combined injuries with bone and all that other stuff. But we're talking about just, you know, straightforward flexor tendons have been improved. And I think some of the things I did do before, or I didn't do before, I'm actually doing like, you know, some of the small finger FDP, um, FDS lacerations, a lot of times, you know, we should just repair the FDP and leave FDS alone because we don't want to create such a bulky repair and create, you know, too much tendon on tendon adhesions and whatnot. And then you send up with an FDP, but I've gotten to repair, you know, um, the FDS, either one or both slips and and uh, doing that and checking the motion, making sure everything's moving well and making sure there's, there's not that that bulkiness that's sort of preventing that. Plus with the venting has made a difference. And I've also started to use, you know, biologics too as well for some of those cases. And I, I don't know if it makes a difference or not uh, too much, but I, I think there's something 
well, let me let me rephrase that. Actually, I'll, let's strike that. So I think I use I have used some biologics for some flexor tendon repairs, and I think there's probably some value in it because of what what it does or what they do, depending upon what the biologic is in terms of preventing adhesion formation and actually helping create an environment where the tendon can can glide easily, especially in the immediate you know uh, period uh, for the you know the days or weeks after the surgery. So um, I have not gone back to look at them to, to see, you know, to go and see if, if it did uh, do what I thought it was doing in vivo because the patient was doing well and then that's that. But I think it's interesting to see those outcomes in, in the patients. And I would like to see more clinical data or, or some more, you know, um, maybe even some animal studies to see if that, what the value is with some of those with flexor tendons. So I think there is probably a role of biologics in tendon repair surgery. I just think we just need more science to, to look at that more critically to see where that would help because that may potentially um, obviate a lot of therapy, a lot of re, you know repeat surgery for tenolysis and things like that. I think, uh, yeah, more to come on that. It's definitely a growing field. Um, and then our last bonus question for you was, doesn't have to be flexor tendon repair, but what's uh, one of your favorite hand cases that you can share with our listeners of something that maybe drew you to hand surgery or that you enjoy doing? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm going to pick two things because I, I actually, you know, one of the reasons I like hand surgery is because I don't have to choose one thing that I like. And so hand is great because you get to be, you know, you get to operate on on, on bones, joints, ligaments, tendons, vessels, uh, you know, nerves. And, and that's awesome. So I'll say, you know, from a bony standpoint, I love doing distal radius fractures. Those are fun. And um, those are, those are always good days. And uh, sometimes uh, they can be really bad and it may not be such a good day, but they're still, they, they make you think and, and, and uh, it's, it's a fun case. And um, also I like uh, revision nerve surgeries. I think uh, it's kind of neat to really take a challenging problem and try to make something better for somebody who's having a lot of, pro you know, a lot of problems with that. And when you can go in and, and really address the problem and, and get the, get their pain and their function back, I think it makes a, makes a big difference. So I would say those are kind of my, like two of my favorites uh, of many. <laughs> well, we might have to have you back then. Uh, maybe we'll talk about some hypothenar flaps or some adiphofascial flaps uh, on our next episode, because that's definitely something that it's kind of a hot topic and how you address that. So maybe more to come there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You have a great afternoon, but that was wonderful. Thanks again. No, thank, thank you both for having me. This was great. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I hope uh, you know, the audience will uh, find this uh, interesting and, and learn some points. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.